0: Write On Audio, the podcast for writers and all who are interested in books, literature and the printed word. Write On Audio has moved to a weekly format, splitting our content into shorter, themed podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss any of our editions. Write On Audio Interviews. Inspiring you to write by sharing the experience of prominent authors. This month's interview is with novelist, poet, spoken word artist and historian Jaspreet Kaur. Passionate about gender issues, taboo subjects and affecting social change across the Asian community and wider society. Her book, Brown Girl Like Me, has been described as an inspiring memoir and empowering manifesto that equips women with the confidence and tools they need to navigate the difficulties that come with an intersectional identity. The interviewer is Raitan's Padia. So hi, Jaspreet. I hope you're having a
1: great day. Um, this is Dia. I am, I am 18 years old. I'm a student of English literature now. Now, uh, and I'm here in Goa, in India, and I'm extremely glad to be able to have this conversation with you. I'm, I'm, I was looking forward to it uh, for from quite a time now and uh yeah I must say like uh I don't know how it works but then the pregnancy glow I can like I I mean your face is all (laughs) pretty and it it is it is great so first of all congratulations on that um I saw your post and I was like so happy about it thank you
2: thank you so much yeah so (laughs) so kind of on the personal side we've been keeping that quiet for as long as we can um I'm now coming up to five months in my pregnancy. But I was getting to the point that uh, I was no longer going to be able to hide it for much longer. So yeah, really nice to share that news. And and thank you. Thank you for the warm wishes. (laughs) I'm glad I'm glad. So diving
1: right into the interview. And I mean, I'm obviously we're curious about your pregnancy so has this news and uh, the experience of uh, being pregnant and becoming a mother has it changed uh, your um, or heightened your perceptions about your culture your
2: identity mm. oh that's a brilliant question to start with um, I think I would absolutely say yes I think since, since becoming pregnant and also kind of thinking about motherhood for quite some time now, as well as it being quite a big feature in, in Brown Girl Like Me and in the book, kind of those concepts around raising the next generation and the kind of values that I'm hoping to install into the next generation, things that have been passed down from my parents and my grandparents in terms of my culture, my, my faith, my heritage, also as a historian the love for history and understanding our past Um, all those values I think are are definitely things that I want to want to pass on to future generations and and hopefully to my children so I think that's starting to become more apparent in the last couple months and and really thinking about how to implement some of those things within our daily lives within our home within our families um, and within our communities and Right now, this week, we've just launched a a national university tour where I've been traveling to 17 different universities across the UK this month um, to meet students who are starting at university, or they may even be in their second, third years or or postgraduate students, um, specifically providing workshops for young South Asian girls and women. Um, And I think meeting this kind of younger demographic and this younger age group is really getting me thinking about the world I hope my children grow up in and and the change that still needs to happen. So I think now uh, if I needed a fire in my belly uh, I've definitely got it and this is kind of giving a little bit more of a sense of urgency to to make more change happen. Um, I definitely think so.
1: Wow I mean as a Indian girl who has just started university Mm -hmm. as well I think I think even this opportunity of having this conversation and after reading your book, I think I think it does mean a lot to me. And that really sounds very interesting. So uh, having said that, uh, could you walk us through an average day of yours
2: as a brown girl living in the UK? Oh, an average day. Um, I guess I guess right now my, my average day in terms of my professional and personal life really do. Kind of intertwine and as a writer as a poet and also as an educator my days look very different one day could be me sitting at my desk and reading and researching and writing um, and one day could be me performing and speaking at events and doing public speaking and um, so one day to the other looks very different but I think a few things that I've I've really been quite strict about to have in my routine, really to support my mental well-being, is I, I always start my day off with meditation. Um, and I think kind of that mindfulness meditation just really keeps me grounded at the start of my day. We've got a big doggy, um, his name's Hida, and my husband and I take him for a good hour walk every morning um, and that's kind of a routine that forces us to get out of bed and get outdoors no matter the weather Um, and I think some of those those routines um, have yes really supported my well-being but they definitely keep me grounded no matter how kind of busy um, or crazy the day might be Um, so I guess every day looks different. But as a brown girl, I think there's specific things in my day that that definitely keep me close to home, um, whether that's food or whether that's meditation, whether that's music, um, whether that's spending time with my family, which is a big part of of who I am. Um, I think those things are, are definitely a big part of my day and and making sure I make the time for those things, especially when I've got such a busy schedule. So yeah, I guess as a brown girl, that's definitely what my day looks like now. When I was younger, I guess it would also be filled with with schoolwork and studying and and obviously, as a young South Asian and and I'm sure you can definitely resonate with this year is education, is something that our parents and my family were really adamant that I did well in and and growing up with with that message of we've got to work twice as hard and um, be on time um, and really focus on education was how most of my childhood and my young adult life really looked like so living in the library working really hard studying really hard was it was a big part of my day and I think some of that work ethic still exists with me today even as an adult in my working life to still kind of hold on to some of those values of, of working hard um but also trying to balance that with rest I think that's the bit I'm finding difficult these days so uh learning how to maybe change some of those behaviors to make sure I am making time for rest and, and looking after myself too Wow,
1: that I think means a lot because uh, as someone in the creative field, I think that is very important because uh, to deal with the writer's blog or to keep those Mm -hmm. thoughts flowing, especially when you mentioned about elements of your day that remind you of home, Mm -hmm. um, Right On currently is exploring the theme of home and I think that links really beautifully. Mm -hmm. Uh, So having said that, uh, could you share some of your early experiences as a brown woman again growing up in the UK?
2: Absolutely. So I I grew up in East London, um, which in the UK is a very diverse and and multicultural part of the UK. Um, So I grew up in primary school in secondary school with a real mixture of all kinds of demographics and and cultures and backgrounds and religions, um, which I'm really grateful for to to grow up around that kind of diversity and learning about all of that. Um, And I definitely in my family had had strong South Asian women in my family, um, who who were definitely role models to me. But unfortunately, in the mainstream, and what I mean by that is when I watched TV shows and and when I watched films and when I was reading books, obviously as a avid avid uh, lover of literature, always always making time to read and go to the library. Um, what I couldn't see was any representation of women like myself or girls like myself in any of those kind of mainstream spaces. And and that didn't quite make sense to me growing up because I I could see around me this amazing diversity and different types of South Asian women and all these amazing stories in the home, but I couldn't see that being reflected anywhere. And I think growing up as a teenager, that feeling of feeling seen and unseen was was definitely quite confusing in in trying to understand who I was where did I fit in where did I belong and I remember for quite some time quite some time as a teenager there was a period where I, I think I denied myself of my culture and to fit in to this white western world which was seen as more of the ideal I let go of parts of my culture Um, I, I kind of denied myself of all these beautiful things that were part of my heritage just to fit in to the Western world. And I think that made me feel even worse and made me feel even more confused. And around that age of kind of 13, 14 years old, I was also suffering from anxiety attacks and panic attacks Um, I did go through a period of bullying at school so I think all of those things really impacted how I felt about myself and how I felt um, in terms of my self-confidence. So I had to really find tools to to really pick me back up and, and to support my well-being and I guess that's where my love of writing really began and it was first by writing poetry and using poetry and journaling as an outlet for all those emotions I was holding in as a young teenager and and because I was growing up in quite a traditional Punjabi family we just didn't talk about these sorts of things in the home. Um, It's definitely changed now Uh, we're definitely much more open to talking about mental health and our emotions and sometimes these more difficult topics but back then If you can imagine for a lot of our families, our parents, our grandparents, the main concern was having a roof over our head, having food on the table and and clothes on our back. So I completely understand from that context of that time, making time for, for mental health and well-being wasn't the first priority. Um, so, because I couldn't speak to anyone at home or friends or teachers, I was using writing and reading as as my form of therapy, as my way to support me through those years as a young teenager. Um, but it wasn't all negative. I've got lots of beautiful memories of my childhood and my childhood home. Um, I'm actually currently this week at my mum's, my mum and dad's house, at my family home this week, and um, staying here for a few days. And I just love being here because all those memories come flooding back. I grew up in an intergenerational home with four and then even five generations growing up in this home. And and that's a big part of who I am. And I think that's definitely something that will always stay with me no matter where I go. So I think that theme of home, and I'm really glad you guys are kind of exploring that topic and that theme of home is definitely something I've thought a lot about, that no matter where I am, where I move to, or what stage of life I'm in um wherever there is family I think that feels like home to me
1: wow I think that has built the perfect base for this interview because you've you've touched upon so many uh, topics like from mental health to your family home and I am really curious about a lot of that mm-hmm. uh, but um so um, initially, that we discussed about your pregnancy, mm-hmm. and uh, often a book is called a writer's baby, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, writing, like writing a book, is often linked to giving birth. And uh, what what are
2: your thoughts about uh, the relevance of that analogy? <laughs> I completely I completely agree with that analogy. I have been calling "Brown Girl Like Me," which was my debut book, my first book, um, my baby, my first baby. Um, I feel like the the process of writing it was was, if anything, so grueling to go through that time of of researching, uh, interviewing, as well as writing, editing, proofing. That whole process was was if anything, kind of growing this this baby. Um, and then for it then to be out in the world when it was published earlier this year, definitely felt like that baby was now out in the world. Um, so I completely resonate with that with that analogy and and that's exactly what i've been calling brown girl like me and every month when we get to uh, the anniversary date of the book coming out I, I do say it's however months old um, and when it gets to a year old next February I'll be calling it a year old so yeah if anything it is my first baby and even though I've got a real baby growing inside of me now I think going forward any any pieces of work that I work on or any books well I'll, I'll still see them in that same way just because the amount of labor that went into it um, and, and hoping it goes out there and kind of makes the change and helps people when it when it then goes out in the world. So, yeah, I completely agree with that analogy. Well, I actually <laughs> asked something um, touching on that, because I, I love the fact that you talked
0: about the intergenerational home mm-hmm. earlier. And I, I was just thinking whether there's a kind of really a, a, a link there, because obviously your book, you know, that the, the iterations of your book, I mean, that will shape and grow, won't it as well?
2: In terms of how it's perceived, how it's mm-hmm. read. And I just wonder how, you know, how how older generations, <laughs> I know it's aimed at, at tea or, or young women, but I mean, how do older generations of women and even, and men in the community see it? Is that mm-hmm. intergenerational play a big part of, of your reach for it? Absolutely, absolutely. And it was a big part of the, the actual research process as well, because um when I was interviewing when I was interviewing South Asian women for this book, some of the youngest interviewees were about 13, 14 years old, and the oldest were in their 80s and 90s. So that, that intergenerational perspective was definitely a, a big part of this book. And I I was conscious of that even when I was interviewing. South Asian women as young as 14, all the way up to women in their 80s and 90s, because I, I really wanted that intergenerational perspective on these topics and these themes, everything from mental health to body image to relationships, all of those topics and themes that come up in the book, I I wanted it to have that intergenerational lens. Because I think so often with some of these topics, what happens and what I've seen historically and what I've seen online is sometimes the younger generation and the older generation get pitted against one another. And Mm -hmm. and I didn't want that to happen with this book. I wanted it to be a space for learning from one another, to see if there's similarities between different generations, if there's differences between um, those different generations. And ultimately, after doing this research and writing this book, there's actually more similarities than there were differences between these different generations. Um, and I think holding space for that and, and conversations between different generations is, is incredibly important. And, and some of the workshops that I run um really create really empl- implement some of that ideal of, of younger generations and older generations, having conversations with one another, listening to one another and learning from one another. Um, And I think that's really, really important as a community, as a society to continue to do that, Um, especially with a growing elderly population, which is something that I highlight in the book. This is gonna be something we really need to think about in our community spaces, that how does the younger generation support the older generation and vice versa? And how do we really, nourish and nurture some of those relationships so I think that's definitely something that's come from my own life and my own home my grandparents were were definitely huge role models for me and inspirations for me growing up and now as a married woman in in my married life I'm also a carer for my husband's naniji so my husband's maternal grandmother and I'm one of her primary carers and I mention it in the book, in the chapter on love and relationships, is that she has actually taught me so much about love. And that's quite a funny thing to think about, to think about a 90-year-old woman is the one who's taught me the most I understand about love and compassion. And in the Sikh faith, we've got this concept of jaddi gala, which means having eternal optimism, no matter what life throws at you and through the ups and downs, the good, the bad, the light, the darkness, to have this sense of this eternal optimism. And to be honest, that's something I learned from her, because as a 90-year-old woman who spent much much of her life as a widow, um, so she was widowed at quite a young age, she also had two daughters, and no sons um, she was often really ostracized from the south asian community which is which is often what happens to widows and to those that might not have any sons and despite all that hardship she's gone through she's still the most loving kind selfless person I've ever met and, and really upholds that kind of eternal optimism that I was talking about so that's just just one of the examples in the book where I'm talking about how we can learn things from from different generations or from older generations um, uh, so yeah it's a really important theme in the book and, and definitely something I try and implement in a lot of the work that I do as well. Perfect thank you so much for that Dia sorry for interrupting your questions. Oh, that's that's
1: uh, totally okay. Um, having discussed that, and now I'm really curious. So you are the third generation uh, in your family, right? So how do you think the idea of home or what your heritage means to you has changed from the generation of your grandmother or your husband's grandmother to your parents, to you, and now to your kids?
2: Hmm. I think that kind of the change in the concept of home. If I think about for my grandparents' generation who were the first ones to migrate to the UK from Punjab, um, I think for them, that concept of home must've been quite a confusing one for for quite some time. And, And I remember conversations with my granddad even till his late years before he passed away, a lot of the time home for him was still Punjab. Um, and we still have our family home back in our village in Punjab that we try and go back and visit at least once a year. Um, my parents are about to head out there now, and I think there's still a concept of home back there in Punjab for my family, um, and that's definitely something my my granddad installed in us that though we have migrated here to the UK, um, there is definitely a sense of home in our motherland too, and. Um, I think that's something my, my parents hold on to. And that's something they've installed into us, into the, the third generation, myself and my siblings too. And for us now as the third generation and, and those of us that were born here, my siblings and I were born here in the UK, trying to understand what home means for us is sometimes a bit more confusing. Um, and often it's described as not enough for here and not enough for there. And, and sometimes that feeling of just floating somewhere in between. And what I mean by that is sometimes here in the UK, not feeling British enough for the Western world. And if I was to go back to Punjab when I when I go to India and go back to my family home, um, I'm not enough for there either and seen as an outsider there. So it's kind of fitting in the middle of those two worlds. And I think that's why... For, for myself and, and what I've mentioned in the book when I'm looking at these concepts of home is, is finding home in these other elements. It might be finding home in a person, it might be finding home in your family, it's not necessarily always a physical location. It might be in the food that you eat, it might be in the stories that you tell. I think home is is something that can be found in lots of different places and um, but it's interesting to see how that might have changed over time from my granddad's generation to us now and will be even more interesting to see what it's like for our kids and, and for my children in the future of what do they see home do they feel at home here in britain in the uk more so than i did Will that feel like a bit of an improvement or a way forward or will they still feel some of that that kind of sense of belonging feels maybe sometimes still confusing. But, yeah, it's been really interesting to see that change over time and and holding on to the elements of home back in Punjab, but also understanding my my place here in the UK as well. Okay, so having said that,
1: uh what what do you think about the, the complicated issues in terms of cultural appropriation? Because uh have being a second or third generation and everything that you mentioned in uh your previous answer, does it
2: make it uh difficult for you to claim your heritage mm, this is this is a brilliant question and and was well, something I wanted to dive into in the book because I think this word cultural appropriation is, is something that's been coming a lot coming up a lot in recent years we see it online we see it on social media we see it in articles and um, where appropriation has taken place but I really wanted to dive into what does it actually mean what does it feel like when appropriation takes place um, and how can we do better Ultimately, as, as a society, how can we appreciate one another's cultures without appropriating them? And it's sometimes a touchy subject. And I, and I don't want it to be a touchy subject. I'd rather it be something we can discuss so that we can all do better. And, and ultimately, the definition of cultural appropriation is this idea of unequal cultural exchange. And it means when a more dominant part of society takes elements from a less dominant part of society or a marginalized community, minority community, and they commodify some of those cultural aspects. They make them fashionable, they make money out of them. Whereas that host community where it's come from, never were able to reap those same benefits. And and that's what it means by definition. But but in the book, I kind of share a really clear story of what it can feel like. And it was a couple of years ago when my mom and I were sitting, having our daily cup of jar, which we would do every afternoon once I'd finished up work. And we're having a cup of tea and we had the TV on playing in the background and it was a music video playing. And I wasn't really paying much attention to it, but it was a a white Australian rapper. And in this music video, she was wearing a traditional Lenga and a Dabatta on her head and a nose ring, a nut, a tikka. She had Bollywood Bollywood backup dancers dancing behind her. Um, And even in the video, she's like riding an elephant. And I didn't really think much of it until my mum made the following comment. And she said, actually a positive thing at first. She said, oh, doesn't she look nice in what she's wearing? And then she followed up by saying, it's such a shame I wasn't able to wear those things as much when I first migrated here. And I was like, what do you mean by that, mum? And, and what she went on to describe was the fact that when she migrated to the UK in the late 70s, in 1979, and um, she migrated over to the UK at the age of 18 to get married to my dad, who was already here in the UK at the time. And we used to have a corner shop here in East London. And my mum used to stand at the till every day working the shop. And obviously the only clothes she had at that point was her sylvargumis. And she would have to hear people coming into the shop, saying racist slurs under their breath, making comments about what she was wearing, how she smelled and had to deal with that abuse every day. And eventually my mum just kind of saved up a bit of loose change and she bought herself a pair of jeans and she wore my dad's jacket on top every day. And that almost became her new armour to save herself from some of that ridicule. And we fast forward to the present day, and those same things that my mum was denied and ridiculed for are being worn on white bodies and are seen as more acceptable and fashionable and cool. So that, that's the reality of what it can feel like. And when I heard that story from my mum, that made me understand this concept much better. And and we see it a lot, it being cultural, uh, that appropriation <laughs> happening in music, in fashion fashion brands taking elements from other cultures and and not even recognizing where they've come from or or given credit to to where they've come from and making lots of money out of it and and ultimately what i mentioned towards the end of that chapter on cultural appropriation is how can we avoid some of these circumstances and ultimately it's it's about education understanding where lots of these cultural elements come from um, this the self the kind of self-care movement is also having a lot of talk around this especially when it comes to yoga and meditation and some of these practices that have come from South Asia and have existed for thousands of years and and of course it's absolutely fine for different people for white people for white women to teach yoga but I think there's there's the, the, the need for recognition of where some of those elements come from, the history behind it, the spirituality behind it, the meaning of some of those concepts um, sometimes gets diluted, and sometimes gets lost. And and that's what, again, appropriation can can feel like. So it's really around that self-education, asking some of those questions around the significance behind something, um, the story behind where it comes from. And if anything, to try and get that host community where it comes from, to be as involved as possible in some of those those concepts and ideas and and this year I've had really interesting conversations with with advertising companies with with fashion brands who really want to up their knowledge in this space and one of the things that I advise them is that get those communities involved have Mm -hmm. them there at the table at that table having those discussions around whatever product it is whatever piece of clothing it is don't don't ignore them from the conversation so I've provided kind of some of those tips and advice on, on how to avoid appropriation, but we can still appreciate one another's cultures. And I think as we this world becomes more multicultural, more diverse, that's what we want to see. We want to see each other appreciating one another's cultures, um, but never disrespecting them.
1: Indeed, indeed. I mean, uh, your book is truly uh, a toolkit for uh, any brown girl living in the UK. Uh, and before we um, just try to discover that, uh, could you tell us how the creative process of writing this book uh, began
2: for you? Mm. I think I mean, the creative process first started with, I guess, that feeling of what I mentioned before of why, why did a book like this not exist already? Why was the South Asians woman's story being ignored, being erased, being muted? And why was it we saw it being told on our behalf by other people and it wasn't coming from our voice? And I think that was the starting point, kind of that sense of frustration and confusion. And I did a kind of thorough literature review to see what other books out there exist. And over the years, there have been autobiographies and, bibli- and biographies by South Asian women, there has been a number of kind of pieces of fiction um, and there has been kind of academic work looking into the South Asian woman's experience but I couldn't find a a narrative non-fiction in this style that existed in the UK And, and the last book that I found was by an amazing writer and activist her name's Amrit Wilson and she wrote a book in the late 70s called Finding Our Voice, South Asian Women in Britain. And I was like, how for over 40 years has there not been another book, an update on the South Asian woman's experience? And I think that was the starting point. And I continued my literature review. I began to think about the themes and topics I would want to write about, what issues are impacting South Asian women, um, but also stories of celebration and achievement and resilience. I didn't want it to just be the negative things that are happening but also the amazing things that South Asian women are doing. So that's why the book is made up of women who are Olympic athletes and business owners and and filmmakers and activists and all these incredible Asian women doing amazing things out in the world to share their stories too. So it was then a matter of finding those women, interviewing those women, collating their stories Um, as well as weaving in kind of anecdotal stories from my own life, too, because I wanted to provide kind of that that personal narrative in this book as well. And I kind of wove that all together and pieced it all together. And then it was a matter of of trying to get it published and thinking about how does that process work Um, as a first time writer and somebody that didn't have any authors or writers in my family. Um, I was really starting from scratch without that knowledge of of how the publishing world and the literary world works. Um, So I spent a good year researching how to get published. How does that whole world work? Um, I found myself a great literary agent who then supported the book book and the proposal. And then we then started reaching out to publishers to to try and get it out there into the world. Um, So that was the process, but there was definitely the days of of writer's block or days of writing pages and looking back on it and thinking, oh my God, who wrote this? Like, what is this? This is terrible, deleting it all. Um, There would be days of, of, yeah, that writer's block where nothing would be coming to me and I would need to just kind of pause um go for long walks i would try and look for inspiration in other places reading more books going to exhibitions going to art spaces museums to really try and get some of that flow back um and i was then after the book being signed getting to the process of trying to finish writing the book and that was the book actually got signed uh, in march of 2020 And if we all remember, that was when the world turned upside down and the pandemic began. And my writing process had to change slightly then because I could no longer conduct my interviews face to face with any of the women. And that had to move digitally, Um, which was actually a positive thing in the end, because it actually allowed me to reach more women than I was actually trying to meet face to face. Um, and like the rest of us I had nowhere to go nowhere to be I just had to be at home and we set up a little desk in the corner of my bedroom and I had to sit there and finish writing that book during the pandemic so there was kind of pros and cons of writing it during that time as well uh, that had no other distractions Um, but of course the pandemic was happening and that was as we all remember a really scary time as well but it, it gave the book a real sense of urgency as well during 2020, 2021, especially seeing some of the the things that were happening globally. When you think about the Black Lives Matter movement after the death of George Floyd in in 2020, if we think about some of those statistics that were coming out about how ethnic minorities were more likely to die of COVID than our white counterparts, uh, the amount of domestic violence that was increasing in homes against women, a lot of those issues that were happening during that time just made me feel like this book is even even more urgent and really needs to exist in the world. Um, so yeah, that, that's a little bit about the writing process, the, the pros, the cons, uh, the difficult days, the days of uh, tears and, and nothing coming, um, but also the days of, of where it would all really flow with lots of passion and lots of heart. Uh, so yeah, that's a bit about the process. So you mentioned that um,
1: you read you read a book and felt like there should be more books about the brown heritage that should exist there. So how do you think? How do you feel uh, if this book had existed when you were growing up? How would it have helped you? Well,
2: that's a beautiful question. Um, honestly, this is the book I needed growing up. It was a book I always wished existed growing up, and I think it really would have just given me a sense of more confidence in myself I think it would have just guided me on some of those kind of difficult issues and topics that I needed a bit of that guidance on and a little bit of that kind of support from Um, I often describe that this book is kind of like the older sister that's kind of providing you with some of those tips and advice and tricks that you that you need growing up and i did have an older sister who provided me lots of that but but i think this book would have kind of given more of those tools and like I mentioned before, we're currently on this university tour and I'm speaking to young South Asian girls and women um, and speaking to them about some of these themes in the book. And, and they're describing it in the same way that they wish they had this book back when they were a teenager and, and are great grateful that they're having it now at the age of 18 and it's definitely kind of providing them with some of that guidance and support. So, yeah, I, I definitely wish I had it had it growing up. And even just seeing a book like this on a shelf in a bookshop Going into a bookstore or into a library and seeing a book with this kind of cover of a South Asian woman on the front of a book would have, I think, made a huge impact on on how I felt about myself. I think I would have feel feel, feel, that feeling of I feel more seen and I feel like I belong here. But I remember going into bookstores growing up and there was never anything like that on the shelves. So, uh, yeah, that that would have made a huge impact on on feeling like I belong as well. Uh, and also in the beginning of this interview
1: and even otherwise, you uh, mentioned a lot about mental mental health and well-being of people. And you also mentioned that poetry is something that helped you with that. And I am a poet and I, I really enjoy writing poetry. So uh, would you like to share some of, your, uh, some of your experiences as a spoken word artist or as a poet and how that has helped you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, the, the reason I started writing poetry was that form of therapy that outlet and at first I didn't even know I was writing poems I I thought I was just kind of writing out my feelings and if they just became poetic work and it didn't develop into spoken word poetry till much later on Um, and that was only about six years ago that I first started performing some of this poetry publicly for a number of years I, I kept all these poems to myself because I was just afraid of what people might think. I didn't didn't have the confidence to share it with anybody. And the trigger point that the moment where I felt like I wanted to start sharing this poetry with other people um, was back when I was doing my master's in gender studies. And I just finished my research thesis on a really heavy topic on, on female infanticide, um, which is the killing of baby girls because of son preference and the preference to have a daughter. And it's it's a big part of, of the book as well, about wow. this issue of this ongoing sun preference in some South Asian communities. There are actually 140 million missing girls. But how do I get this message out further? And I re- realised that not everyone had the time to read my 20,000 word thesis. So I summarised that research paper into a poem. So yeah, after, so, so from that first performance of, of sharing a poem on a really important topic to me Um, what ended up happening after that performance was it ended up going viral and I saw messages coming from across the globe it'd gone viral in the UK North America Canada Australia India and and lots of people really resonated with that poem and, and were saying how They they felt it was such an important topic to to speak about and were really glad that I did through that piece of poetry. And I think that's when I first recognised how poetry and the arts and specifically spoken word poetry, which is meant to be said aloud and is meant to be heard by others, can really be a powerful tool for change. Uh, Whether that's social change, whether that's political change, whether that's cultural change, it can sometimes be a kind of softer access point into some of these difficult topics, especially taboo topics or or stigmatized topics in the South Asian community. And and that's what kept me going. And I kept sharing poetry on on women's issues, on, on mental health, on race and identity Um, And that's when my career as a poet really began. And at the time, I was a, I'd finished my master's and I'd become a history teacher. I went into teacher training and I'm a history and sociology and politics teacher. And I was teaching in, in secondary schools here in London for a number of years. And I was almost balancing these two careers of being a full time teacher a teacher by day, a poet by night, and and performing at shows all around the UK. And and it's really just grown from there. And and it's still, even though my debut book was a non-fiction book, it it has pieces of my poetry in there. Each chapter actually opens with one of my pieces of poetry and then goes into the topic or theme in more detail. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about my poetry journey and, and definitely one I'm hoping to pursue and hoping to continue when I first started doing performance poetry I remember friends and family were kind of like what what is this poetry what is spoken word Um, and I started to bring my family with me to my events and to my shows Um, and they are now some of my biggest fans and love coming to to all my performances and and for obviously a South Asian family you can imagine going into the creative arts was something that they weren't quite sure of can that be a job can that be a career um my mum was always concerned about me performing at these shows in all these random places across the country so I just started bringing them with me because I think the fear was coming from a place of they just it was the fear of the unknown so once they started to see how it was helping people um and impacting people's lives they they were definitely the big supporters of all the work that I do and uh, they're now my biggest fans bless them And if anybody is listening and and they're interested in getting into the creative arts, but they may not have that family support or they might be the first ones going into those fields and their families. One of the best pieces of advice I can give is is try to bring them on that journey with you. Um, And sometimes that fear is coming from the fear of the unknown and and I'm really glad to see that we're seeing more South Asians getting into the creative arts, getting into film and music and writing and, and are acting as some of those role models to show that this is possible to have this as a job and have this as a career as well.
1: Um, as as um, someone sitting here in India and connecting with you on the other side um, and we are coming together how do you think we can come together and explore this idea of how we can maintain our culture in the digital world Um, and do you think that your book serves as a way of how
2: we can do this? Mm, I think that that kind of international and and global sense of of sharing with one another having solidarity with one another is incredibly important and towards the end of the book the last chapter of the book is called power in the digital age and it's looking at social media and sisterhood and solidarity and I really couldn't write this book in a post-2020 world without looking at the digital space and the impact it's had on South Asian women and and though we know sometimes the digital space can be a negative space, impacts our well-being, um, can sometimes be quite a dangerous place for the women of colour um, because of abuse and attacks. One of the positive things that came out of this research and speaking to South Asian women was that for the first time in human history, we now have this international sense of sisterhood with other south asian women that i don't think has happened for for a very long time i think maybe there was that sense of solidarity pre-partition pre kind of indian independence um we definitely saw movements here in the 70s and 80s in the uk where different types of south asian women were coming together But I think now with this digital age, it's allowing this kind of transnational feminist sisterhood to happen where where women in the Western world can see what's happening across the globe and vice versa. Um, Right now, we can see what's happening in Iran and, and a number of kind of issues happening globally for women where people across the globe are supporting one another and being allies to one another and and sharing that solidarity and and coalition and i'm hoping that continues going forward and the digital space has been a brilliant brilliant tool for that for that education around one another that connection that sisterhood uh, which is which i find is is so beautiful and so special but i think we just kind of need to continue that going forward especially as these digital spaces keep changing They're becoming very commercialized. They're becoming kind of commodified spaces. So how do we make sure that that narrative continues and that, that the sense of sisterhood and solidarity continues even as the digital space keeps changing um it's actually a question i leave at the end of the book and i don't know if i have an answer for it yet and i'm kind of leaving that question with the reader and with the audience of how do we make sure this amazing sense of sisterhood and solidarity continues um into the future as well and and hopefully in 10 years time if there's a brown girl like me 2.0 um Maybe we will hope to see that that sense of sisterhood has continued and it's grown as the world becomes smaller, um, as it becomes more globalised, as this digital age continues. Hopefully those really positive elements kind of keep growing as well.
1: That brings me to the end of my questions. and, And I had a lovely time having
2: this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lee, and thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you to Jaspreet Kaur for being our guest on today's podcast. The interviewer was Dear Padia, and we'll post links so you can find out more about Jaspreet Kaur in the show notes for this podcast. We're always delighted to read your contributions, so if you'd like to see your words in Write On or hear them on this podcast, please get in touch. We'll share this link and all others mentioned in today's podcast as part of our show notes. I've been Tiffany Clare, and you've been listening to Write on Audio. Write on Audio is produced by Chris Gregory, and it's an Alternative Stories production for Pen to Print.